Alright, everybody, welcome to Flyers AD here. It is Friday, November 5th, 2021 here. And uh, going to talk, <laughs> talk some Flyers. Uh, the Dave Festchuk interview that was supposed to happen yesterday was postponed. Um, had a uh, medical thing to take care of in the morning. And if I'm talking quiet now, it's I have a very bad respiratory infection. Um, so I may need to be a little extra quiet on this show. But I did boost the gain in the mic, so you should still be able to hear me um, relatively well. But uh, he'll be back probably, I don't know, next week, week after. We shall see. But um, Flyers played last night, played the Penguins. And in one of their, maybe the worst effort of the season thus far, um, <laughs> we were going to do a post game last night. We made it to about the second period. It said, fuck this. You know, no point in uh, talking about this game last night. But we'll talk about it today. We have to recap uh, Tuesday's game as well. So Anthony's back. Anthony, how are you doing today? Uh, not too bad, man. Uh, like I said on Twitter, pretty bad effort overall. But, I mean, <clears throat> the fact that they were able to, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, salvage a point out of it, in a bad effort and three so-so efforts i would say overall and they've come away with three of a possible six points i guess that's a little bit of a silver lining that you could pull from but overall like you just you want them to come out better against a division rival especially in a division as barbaric as the metropolitan division where every point counts so, I mean, there's two sides of that coin. You could say, hey, they at least salvage a point. But then by the other token, you you could say, hey, you didn't take advantage of a Crosby and Malkinless Pittsburgh Penguins team. So, I mean, depending which way you w- look at it, I mean, I guess you could kind of be more positive or negative. But overall, you just want a better effort from that team. The positive side is they stole a point last night um, in a game that they basically had no... Uh no uh no will to win and the only reason they were in it is because Pittsburgh was so decimated up front that they could not score a lot of goals themselves and quite frankly that was the story of the Coyotes game as well um was the Coyotes played a very very strong game the Flyers didn't get better till later in the game but the Coyotes are so weak up front that they just couldn't solve Carter Hart and get through you know the little bit of good defense they played so that was kind of the story of the last two games and last night you know what's funny is there are a lot of people complaining about things that I don't think there are a lot of issues right now the third line being one and Ristolainen and Sanheim being the other and the third line I know they're not producing that much Scott Lawton did have the tying goal I believe he had one in the Coyotes game as well they may not be registering points on paper yet. The shots may not be going in, but that has been one of the best lines from an offensive and defensive standpoint in terms of just getting shots on goal, putting pressure on, you know, like the, the, the results may not be showing up, but in terms of going through the process the right way, I think that third line has been very, very good. People are starting to turn because they're not seeing the results, but overall, I think that line is just phenomenal right now of Lindblom, Lawton, and JVR. Yeah, I mean, they've just been so damn snake-bitten, and I think Oscar Lindblom particularly has been the most snake-bitten, still has not scored a goal this year, but I mean, he got robbed by Tristan Jari once uh, when he got that shoulder up, and then I believe there's another one from in tight, and it was nice to see Scott Lawton break through and get that tying goal, but I mean... Look, each and every night, it feels like this is the line that has the puck in the offensive zone the most. If you go by many metrics, they are the best line in terms of, you know, Corsi and expected goals 4 per 60 and expected goals 4 percentage. But the thing is, is that they aren't generating 
a lot of offense. And that's okay when the other lines are generating. But I think that Farabee, Broussard, and Atkinson just continue to be a really big issue as of late. I thought, in particular, Cam Atkinson had a poor night last night. I think Joel Farabee's been pretty bad since the beginning of the out west road trip. So when that line stopped really producing like they were earlier in the season, all eyes kind of went to the depth depth scoring, mm-hmm. which is what you do. And unfortunately, Limblom, Lawton, Van Riemsdyk, they're not very great finishers. They generate a lot. They do all the little things right. They don't give up hardly anything in their own zone. But there's not one guy on that line that could really create offense all on his own. And two of those three guys in Limblom and Lawton, even when they do get opportunities, they aren't the greatest finishers. So, I mean, it's not for a lack of trying, but it was good to see them kind of get off the schneid um, last night with a big time goal to help them salvage a point. And, you know, going into last night, they had collectively scored one five-on-five goal during the whole season. Now they have two, both coming by the way of Scott Lawton. But, I mean, look, I mean, it's good to see them doing all the right things and, you know, the process and all that. But it was very important for them to, you know, translate that to the scoreboard. JVR, one goal, five points. Lawton has three goals and three points. And Lindblom has zero goals and one point. But, uh... They've been very, very good on both sides of the ice. So <laughs> kind of that catch-22, you finally find this line that's firing on all cylinders, but they just don't have the the offensive firepower really to make it worth your while. And, you know, the top two lines have been doing well. I think Sean Couturier and Giroux have been on fire this year. Konechny is kind of along for the ride, kind of doing what he was always doing, is riding the coattails of, of Giroux and Couturier. When he's in a role to succeed, he can make it happen. Second line... Far less impressed with than I have been to start the season. Atkinson is still succeeding in what he's doing, but Broussard, you know, I think we're finally starting to see him a little over his head, and Farabee is just running around like a headless chicken right now. You know, they, he's really... I, if you had to tell me one player on this roster that I did not think was going to get off to a rough start, I would not have picked Joel Farabee. I thought this guy was one of the sure things on this roster, but man, oh man, it has been a, a rough line right there for those three. Yeah, it just seems that every time the Flyers are pinned in their zone for an extended period of time, it's that line or the fourth line. And the fourth line, I mean, I don't hate it. I don't love it. But I mean, I think... Two of those four guys, when they're fully healthy, won't be in the lineup. So that's why I'm just like, okay, you're dealing with it while guys like Hayes and um, Allison are out, and they're you know they're pa- they're a passable fourth line. And when they get caught out against other teams' better lines, it's expected that they will be hemmed in. But with Broussard and Atkinson, Farabee, like it's becoming almost like a problem right now. If that. Every time they're out there in the defensive zone, it's like they can't get it out. And offensively, are they're still great. I think that when they do get some chances, you could see that they're all creative, especially Atkinson. But like you said, Farabee in particular, a guy who's supposed to be kind of that two-way guy, plays on the penalty kill with Cam Atkinson. You would think that he would be pulling his weight more, but he has struggled. In terms of Derek Broussard, like, I don't think he's doing anything blatantly wrong, per se. But like you said, he is being a bit overwhelmed now because he shouldn't be playing as your second-line center at all. 
Now, that being said, is he a bad fallback option as a second-line center? No, he's a good guy to have for a short period of time. And now that we're getting on to what will be the 10th game this season, now you're starting to see, like, okay, like, Kevin Hayes can't come back soon enough. You know what I mean? So, I mean, when Kevin Hayes comes back, I'm sure it will help in a lot of ways on the defensive side of things, just settling everything down, being able to eat tougher minutes. But at the same time, you need Farabee to be much better. And I think Cam Atkinson had a rough night last night, so he could be better as well, 5-on-5 defensively. Kevin Hayes set to come off LTIR on Wednesday against Toronto, but it does not sound like he's been practicing yet. He did accompany with the team uh, on this uh, two-game road trip in Pittsburgh and Washington, but uh, it does not sound like he's taken full practices yet, so I don't assume he'll be back Wednesday just yet. It may be another couple weeks before we see him uh, back in the lineup, but it is good to see that he's traveling with the team. He's headed in the right direction, but uh, I would not expect to see him Wednesday night just yet. Yeah, and and I think... What it's almost a good thing that this is happening because I think people finally are starting to realize how much he means to this team. And yes, last year they were talking about, oh, he's shit. Oh, they shouldn't have signed him. Oh, he shouldn't have done this. Well, this is why you signed him to that kind of money. Because if you didn't sign Kevin Hayes, this is what you would have. And people could say, oh, you could have gone another guy, this, that, and the other thing. But guys of even Kevin Hayes's caliber, guys who are, let's say, you know, solid second-line centers, not the greatest, but passable, solid second-line centers, don't be made available all that often. And if they are, you have to bring in a pricey, uh, you have to pay a hefty price to get them, even if it's via trade. Like, let's say a guy like J.G. Pajot, that, you know, the Islanders paid a lot to get him at the trade deadline in 2020, and then subsequently signed him to a contract that pays him $6 million per year. I think Hayes is a better version of J.G. Pajot. But now we're seeing what the lineup looks like without Kevin Hayes. And I think Scott Lawton has done exceeded expectations on numerous fronts to kind of make up for that. But with a guy like Derek Broussard, who, again, I'm not going to hold it against Broussard. He's making $800,000, and he probably should be either kind of like a a third-line left winger or a 4C at this point in his career. And I think for the most part, he's done an admirable job tagging in as the 2C. But this is why you paid Kevin Hayes that money. And I always thought last year... The the hate for him was overblown because I think that people expected too much from him based on what he did in 19 and 20. And I don't think he'll ever be like an offensive dynamo that's going to score 65 plus points per year. But what he will do is give you probably 45 to 55 in an ideal world, right around 50, and be able to play a lot of tough minutes and I don't think it's a far-fetched thing to say that after Katori and Claude Giroux, he is by far their most important forward. And in a lot of ways, you can make the case that he's more important than Claude Giroux, or at least on par with him, because he does play center, and he does play the penalty kill, and he can play a lot of minutes per night. So, I mean, I think we're finally starting to see people realize how important Kevin Hayes is to this hockey team. Yeah, and you know, you and I were probably two of his biggest defenders last year um, when people started turning on him. And I do think he set the expectations for himself almost too high in 1920. <laughs> he had a career year that year and, you know, just was an 
absolute beast on the penalty kill and his two-way skills and his goal scoring. And, I mean, he was such a key cog in the machine. And last year when he was playing fine hockey, you know, there were some hiccups, especially later in the season. But, you know, we do know that he was obviously injured at that point. Um, he, he really kind of did struggle along. But, you know, he's the 2C. He's basically was eating every minute that Sean Couturier wasn't, right? And... You know, it's clear that they need somebody like that to take this lineup. You know, and it's why Broussard is kind of crumbling under the pressure. Um, it's just a roll that's kind of over his head. So you do need Kevin Hayes. Now, ideally, you want him at 100%. I don't think you're going to get him at 100%. Um, you know, I like I said, I probably I don't think we see him until, you know, at least the week of the 15th, if not a little closer to Thanksgiving after that. But, you know. Um, he, he is a very, very important part of this team, and I think you will see things turn around pretty greatly once he returns. But I think what also needs to be said here is that, and maybe not in the regular season, but if they want to make significant noise in the playoffs, I think it is imperative that they get another centerman. Yeah. And again, like not like even a slight upgrade on Scott Lawton, because I do think that eventually Scott Lawton will like have to be I don't know move down a bit or move to the wing I just think you'll need a better centerman than Scott Lawton and that's nothing against him it's just kind of reality and I think that that will even be the case when Kevin Hayes comes back and you know obviously I keep talking about Dylan Larkin and there's no actual like rumor to that it's just me kind of fantasizing the ideal player but I think it's becoming more and more clear that if this team wants to be serious this year, they are going to have to bring in a player like Dylan Larkin or a Thomas Hurdle, something like that, and whatever the cost may be. And whether that's a Travis Konechny or even like a guy like, you know, God forbid, a Joel Farabee, I think it's something that you kind of have to look at. And that's nothing against Farabee or Konechny or Limblom. And I just use those three wingers because they're kind of like the three players I would assume that most teams would look at when they're looking at Flyers forwards. I just, I don't know if this team is able to, will be able to contend for a Stanley Cup unless they get a centerman of Larkin's ability. Because when I watch them play, it seems like there's just not a lot of offense created from the middle of the ice or off the rush, unless it's like the Giroux line. It seems like it's always kind of chip and chase, then throw it to the middle and hope someone can bang it in. And I think they really need a centerman who can kind of bring it up all alone, gain the offensive zone by himself and create a lot of offense almost all on his own off of transition. And a guy like Larkin fits that bill and as much as I love Sean Couturier and as much as I think Kevin Hayes will help they're not really players who will generate that kind of offense so I mean it might sting a bit to give up a Limblom a Farabee or a Konechny I just think that we have to ask ourselves is this team going to do anything serious without a guy like Dylan Larkin or Thomas Hurdle and would it be worth it to move on from a promising winger to get that done Speaking of Sean Couturier, is he hurt? He was, like, uncharacteristically bad last night. Very slow, lots of sloppy passes. Quite a few of those, you know, cross-ice breakup passes he was looking for, I mean, were just horrible. 
That was a very consider, especially considering the start to the season he's had. He he did not look very solid at all last night. To be honest, I think a lot of the quote unquote best players last night looked a little overwhelmed. I thought that not that they were flat out bad, but even Provorov and Braun were, I guess, not as good and rock solid as they had been. And I think that the absences of Hayes and Ellis are direct are directly contributing to that. And in the way of Sean Couturier, I think that not having that guy in Kevin Hayes that he can lean on in, from game to game to game is probably starting to affect him a bit. And, you know, he, he knows that he's probably the only center right now that will generate offense. He's by far their best defensive forward at, all in all. He's playing, you know, so many more minutes and rightfully so than all the other centermen. But I, it's not a secret that there's a massive drop off from Couturier to Broussard and or Lawton. And he knows that. And look, like he's probably trying to do too much because going into last night, what line had scored five on five aside from the Couturier line? Uh, I don't remember, to be honest with you. Like in against Arizona, they scored the empty netter and Katori got the go-ahead goal. Against the Flames, they were shut out. And against the Canucks, they got a power play goal. And the 5-on-5 goal was the Sean Katori goal. So I think you have to go all the way back to the Edmonton game before last night, obviously, where a line other than Sean Katori's line had scored a goal five on five. And of course, I may be wrong, but just off the top of my head, that's what I'm thinking. So last night to me was Sean Katori trying to cr- do too much because he knew that it really all fell on his back. And that doesn't excuse the poor play and uncharacteristically bad decision making with the puck. But I think that that's a big contributing factor. What about you? Yeah, makes sense. It was just, it was one of those, again, he came out of the gate relatively strong this year. And, I mean, just looked slow, and, and the passes were bad. And it could have been a game, you know, where it was just a, a frustrating effort against the Penguins. And he was, you know, overthinking everything and trying a little too hard, which is a, uh, you know, decent possibility and can explain it. Hopefully he looks better uh, tomorrow against the Caps. But, uh, you know, we shall see. 11 points in nine games so far for Sean Couturier, four goals. So... Want to, uh, I guess we'll shift our attention to the defense. Ryan Ellis, still MIA, and the natives are starting to get restless on this one, but I can't say I'm overly surprised. Um, one of the things, you know, one of the things we knew with Ellis coming in was that he has his fair share of an injury history. He's played one 82 game season in his whole career. He played 35 out of 56 games last year, he played 49 out of 60 or so games, whatever Nashville would have had in 1924, the pandemic hit, and, you know, 44 and 17, 18. Like, it's quite possible that this guy may only dress for 50 to 60 games a season. And that's not great, but, you know, people are very angry at it. I guess probably because, you know, it seemed to be a little mishandled early on. You know, he did accompany the team on the Western Canada trip thinking that he would get back into it. And then by the time the Calgary game rolled around, they said, well, you know, you know, this isn't healing as well as they'd like it to. And it's just kind of aggravating. But he did stay home from this road trip. Um, but now it's, man, it sucks that he's missing right now. But uh, they clearly miss him. But I don't know. I'm not, I can't say I'm super angry about him not being here because I expected it. But, you know, they, they, they need Ryan Ellis back. 
Yeah, and like I said, I think last night was the first game where it was evident that they were missing him. Because up until last night, I thought that the top four had been rock solid. Now, I do think that it's been several games now that Yandel and Steeler were starting to crack down. But last night was just a whole new level of bad. I thought that they were pretty atrocious. And I think Nick Sealer is overwhelmed. And again, I'm not going to fault the guy, right? Like... He's a seventh defenseman, or even an eighth if you want to take Sam Moray into account, and he's played every game but one this year. So, I mean, it's only normal that eventually it's his warts are going to begin to show. But I think last night, like, again, Justin Braun and Ivan Provorov, I didn't think they were as good as usual. Um, but again, they're playing so above their heads, or not so much Provorov, but certainly Justin Braun. Uh, but Provorov, I thought he gave up a lot, but I found that Provorov was really activating offensively last night and probably because they were trailing for a fair amount in that game. And he, too, probably realized, like, yeah, nothing's coming offensively here. Um, but I, I'm not going to lay blame at Braun and Provorov. Like, I think all in all, they played very, very well this year, just not as good last night. I thought Travis Anheim had a tough game for the most part, kind of roped it back in towards the end, but early on he was really making tough plays. Already spoke on Yandel and Sealer. And as for Rasmus Ristolainen, like, I mean, I, I I don't know really what to say. I Does he make mistakes here and there? Yeah, he made one really bad one where it kind of got lost in his feet. It led to a two-on-one, heart bailed him out. But aside from that, I thought he played a pretty good game. Like, I mean... He and Provorov were the only defensemen with a positive expected goal differential. Um, he had the second lowest goal expected goals against per 60 and the lowest among all the guys playing in the top four. I mean, I, the, high, the second highest uh, shots for per... No, sorry, that's not right. <laughs> so I'll just forget that. But I mean, even analytics aside, I think that he makes more times than not the simple play with the puck... I think he's eating a lot of tough minutes with uh, Ryan Ellis out. He has the lowest uh, offensive zone start percentage um, with 39.7%. Going into last night, he had only started 5% of his shifts in the offensive zone, which is by far the lowest among team defensemen. I don't know what it's like after last night. But I just think all things considered with Ristolainen playing a, a bigger role with Ryan Ellis out, I really do think that he's done all right. Like, I know people just want to shit all over him every chance they get. But even as analytics go, he was fine last night again. And I just think overall he's played his role perfectly. And, I mean, do I am I going to sit here and say, yeah, they should move him up to the top pairing? Absolutely not. Keep him exactly where he is. But I think once Alice gets back and they could reduce his role even a bit further, he's going to be just fine. So... All in all, I think Provorov, Braun, and Ristolainen, for the most part, were okay. But Yandel, Sealer, and Sanheim had a rough go. Yeah, Sealer, you know, he's one of those guys that has enshrined himself in Flyers lore for the rest of time. He's one of those guys, and, you know, 10 years from now, you'll go back and, you remember Nick Sealer? Yeah, yeah, he was the one that had the great preseason. And, you know, there's a reason why he's not an NHL regular. Um, and, you know, being and with that's Keith, okay. Keith, yeah, that's fine. And being with, you know, Keith Yandel, who isn't the most you know defensively responsible player at this point in his career, is not helping either. Um, but yeah, he's just a dude who should probably be with the Phantoms. Um, you know, he he had his had his time in the sun, and and I do like him, but you know, it's just it's clear he's not a top guy. And 
Yeah, this Sanheim Ristolainen thing, I just, I'm so tired of it already. Or 10 games in, quite frankly, I've been tired of it for, <laughs> you know, seven of these 10 games. It's just, I don't know. I don't know what the fuck people want out of these two. The problem is the battle lines are drawn where you're predisposed to hating one or the other. And, you know, I don't think Ristolainen has been that bad to the eye test. You posted some analytics on Twitter today where he seemed good in that sense. Uh, I think it's just he's an easy scapegoat, especially when he's playing with a golden boy like Sanheim when nobody wants to admit that he's bad. So he's just caught in a real bad spot. But Ristolainen, like, I don't have many complaints overall with Ristolainen. And as he made a few bonehead plays, sure. But so does every single fucking player on the ice. You know, he's not doing it at a higher rate than anybody else. He's not quite as stupid as, say, Abe Kubel or something. You know, he's just a, just a dude right now. Like, they've been playing fine. Sanheim has his hiccups. He's, you know, he's been relied upon a whole lot in the absence of Ryan Ellis. You know, he was out Big on time. the, the, uh, the uh, overtime last night. And, you know, he's been kind of filling the role. And, you know, we've seen Sanheim get bigger chunks of the pie over the years. And it never really works. And it's not working now. So, I, I think that pair overall is still fine. But... You know, the, the, the unjust hate towards Rasmus Ristolainen thus far is just, it's just fucking out of control, and I'm I'm sick of it. And, like, look, just to, so we're completely impartial, like, let's give Travis Sanheim his due. Was he great last night? No, he wasn't. I thought he was poor for most of the game. But to your point, he's eating a lot of tough minutes with um, Ryan Ellis out. Last night, he played the most by a wide margin at 5-on-5. Five five. He had twenty minutes, over 21 minutes at 5-on-5. Five five. The next closest guy was Ristolainen with 18-and-a-half. Overall, he's averaging the most time on ice per game at 5-on-5 five five among all Flyers D with 18-16 per game. More than Provorov, more than Ellis was, more than Braun. And even offensive zone start percentage. Uh, last night, he had the lowest which is pretty telling. And on the season, he's third third from the bottom with 42.6. So, I mean, he and Ristolainen are playing above their heads with one of their best defensemen out. They're one or their second, depending how you rank Ellis. But, I mean, the thing is, and I think people fail to realize this, is that Sanheim and Ristolainen are second-pair defensemen for a reason, if they never made mistakes ever, they would be first-pair defensemen. And second-pair defensemen and third-pairing defensemen will make mistakes time from time. But I think what people fail to realize is that you can't compare Ristolainen and Sanheim to Provorov and Ellis. You have to compare Sanheim and Ristolainen to other teams as second-pair defensemen. Do I think they're one of the best pairings in the NHL? No. And I mean from the second-pair level— no, I don't. Do I think they're better than probably most? I think that they are when they're on their game. And last night was the first game where I said, okay, they had kind of a rough go. But I thought it was more Sanheim. From the eye test, I saw that. And analytically, it backs that up. Ristolainen, like, I, the guy is, like, when I, bat, when I, I guess, say, pump his tires, I'm not trying to say that, yeah, this guy could become a top-pairing defenseman. God, no. But as a number four slash a five, which he is when Ellis is in the lineup, he's a four slash five kind of with Braun. 
I think he's perfectly fine. And he does things that other players on this team don't do. He separates so many people from the puck with sheer physicality. I think he makes simple plays with the puck, which is better. And what people don't realize is that when he's given the opportunity to play in the offensive zone, he actually generates a fair amount of chances. I, I think they should explore him playing him more on the power play. Last night, he had the highest expected goal uh, percentage on the season, aside from Yandel and Sealer, who all the time start in the offensive zone. He has the highest expected goals per 60. Like, I just think that he's a guy that is being asked to play a tough role right now with Ellis out, along with Sanheim. And sometimes he's going to make mistakes. And people, like you said, are just preconditioned to hate this player that no matter how good he does, analytically eye test, the first opportunity they'll get to jump on him, they'll do it. Yep. It's the it's the whole thing. I think it was a O'Connor last night was, was tweeting a lot about them. And, you know, being fair towards both players in terms of criticism goes, but you go through the replies and it, it's like 50-50. You know, there's 100 people there. You know, 50 of them are, oh, Ristolainen sucks. And the other half, oh, Sanheim sucks. And it's like, eh, you know, they're both not great, but they're both... Like, you know, listen, I hate Travis Sand, and it's no secret if you're a long-time listener to this show, but I don't I don't think he's been terrible to start the year. I think he's in over his head, but I think all things considered, compared to what we've seen of him in the past, he's been relatively fine. But, you know, that pair as a whole, it's just, it's prone to breakdowns. They're not the best, neither one of them are the best in their own zone. And, you know, when you get this breakdown in a already you know, heavily favored battle here, no matter what side of the line you're on, it just, it, it, it elevates every last play and every last screw up that otherwise probably wouldn't even have been noticed. So, you know, I <laughs> put a few, put out on Twitter a few weeks ago that, you know, moving on from both these guys this summer may be the best move just for the team and quite frankly my own sanity at this point if both or one of these guys is back next season i fucking i don't know i'm gonna lose my shit dealing with this uh this back and forth nonsense but you know i, I just think once ellis comes back and hopefully he can stay healthy for a prolonged period of time and everything can kind of settle back into what it was before like that'll be a whole lot better uh you know a defensive unit and seal can go away and braun can you know get back to his limited role with with yandel and Provrov as his partner back and the top pair is back thus sandheim and rest will have to work so goddamn hard so hopefully it all you know comes together and uh looks good once once ellis returns and i'm not gonna lie i've been kind of surprised how mikey o has deployed them for the most part like giving them the very tough deployment like i thought provorov and Braun would get that with Ellis out, and I thought Braun would get that regardless, and even Provorov for that matter, but they've really tried to give Provorov more favorable deployment this year. You know, uh, I think that aside from Keith Yandel, he, yeah, he does. Aside from Keith Yandel, he has a, the highest offensive zone percentage start at 50 and a half. So, I mean, certainly that's what they're looking to do. I think it's you're kind of you know, playing with fire a bit, relying on Sanheim and Ristolainen that much. But at the same time, I do understand it because, look, for the most part this season, they've done okay when together. Like, they've been a pair for how many games now? So, like, six, six seven, or seven? Seven, I think. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, six or seven. And I think that aside from the game against Boston and the game again, so it was Boston last night and parts of the Florida game, I think they've been okay. And it's going to be a work in progress. And I do think that when Ellis gets back, it's going to help. Because another thing is, is that, you know, when you take a guy off your top pair who's eating, who's theoretically supposed to eat a bunch of these tough minutes, it's going to have to trickle down a bit. And another thing, while we're kind of talking about the defense, is I do think that them not scoring goals and not being able to sustain a lot of offensive pressure is a kind of causing the defensemen to be forced to defend more. Like, it felt at times last night that they were just constantly defending. And when you're defending in that high of volume, it's normal that you're going to be more prone to make mistakes. And, I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand because the other side of the coin is just like, well, if you're defending better, then you have more time to attack and you guys aren't exhausted. So just from what I've seen with my eyes is that lines like Derek Broussard primarily and at times the fourth line as well, they spend so much time in their defensive zone that a lot of these guys are just asked to defend way, way too much. And then... You also have the other side of the coin where like Yandel and Sealer haven't played nearly as well the last few games. So now they're being tasked more. Guys like Sanheim and Ristolainen and Provorov and Braun are being tasked more to try and make up for it. But needless to say, I think that aside from last night, I really haven't had a problem with the top four on defense. What about you? More often than not, like I said, I, I, as much as I want to shit on Sanheim, being the fair man that I am, I, I think he's doing the best given the circumstances here. And when you're missing Ellis and everyone else has to kind of step up and you put Sanheim and Aristolainen in the rules that are a little bit over their heads, they're going to screw up. Um, but uh, again, I think for the most part, I, I, I have not had too many complaints about the defense that you cannot just chalk up to... Ellis being out, so hopefully when he comes back again, that everything kind of goes back to normal and we can see some, you know, proper deployments of these players and that should work, because it worked for the first few games, so we shall see, but um, other guy, how about Carter Hart? Standing out, looking great again. Um, Had the shutout uh, against the Coyotes, the 29th shutout, had uh, three goals against on 36 shots last night, 917 save percentage. Uh, in overtime, had that weird goal that just kind of crossed the line. Uh, he did not hold the post great short side and uh, on the wraparound and was able to tuck it in over the goal line. But uh, for the most part, I think Carter Hart has been great. He kept him in that game last night. And, uh, like, this is a key piece here of Carter Hart, you know, being back to his normal great ways compared to what he was last year. But... Um, He's really starting to feel like almost Steve Mason at this point, where he's playing his little heart out back there, but the rest of the team is just not properly supporting him early on. This oh, year. he's been he's been brilliant, man. You know, nine two six save percentage, nine forty eight save percentage at even strength, which is great. Like, I mean, I do think he could work on holding his post better because it seems like that's happened a few times. But I'm not going to hold it against him. And look, out of all the goalies in the NHL right now. He's fourth in goals saved above expected with six. And that's saying something. Or even goals saved above expected per 60 or all those analytics that are boring as hell. But, I mean, it it just shows you that he has been just what the doctor ordered aside from the first game against the Canucks. 
And even Martin Jones, I got to give him credit too. When he's been called upon, he's been brilliant. Obviously, only a two game sample size, but 941 save percentage in that time. And a lot of people have said that this is the same team aside from the goaltending actually being very strong as opposed to piss poor last year. I don't think that's necessarily fair because I think that when you watch the game, you just see like more of an effort level and more structure defensively all in all. But yeah, I, I'm not going to deny it. And you really can if you go by statistics that the goaltending has been the backbone of this team this year. I don't think that it's been as important as some of the numbers would say, because I think that in a lot of games like the Boston game, kind of like the Edmonton game or even the um, the Vancouver game that they kept the shots to the outside and it was more quantity over quality. But certainly in the last two games, Carter Hart has been brilliant and probably the only reason that they have uh, three points right now in the last three games. And... Uh... You know, he, I, I, I looked this up last night because I was curious once it seemed like, uh, <laughs> you know, late in the uh, third period before Lawton scored when it looked like it was inevitable they were going to lose. Carter Hart has not won consecutive games since January 28th and 30th of this year, which was, you know, the middle of last season, essentially. Um, and I, by no means am I saying this is all his fault, but... You know, obviously last season he was not very good. You know, he's been very, very good this year, but the team around him is not. You know, it, it's just, it's one of those stats that's mind-blowing that he's played so much. I don't know what the exact number of games is. I need to go back and count. But, um, you know, that that's quite a long time to go without winning two consecutive hockey games. You know, he's been one win, one loss, one win, one loss, one game where he gets pulled, one win, one loss. He came in in relief on this one. He, so a couple of those games, but... Uh, that's kind of one of those stats that, you know, you need to see more wins from him. And again, these past few uh, games, and especially most of this season, this is not necessarily his fault, but it is one of those stats that uh, is a bit telling about where the Flyers have been at, just from a team perspective lately, that they just cannot consistently get those wins in the win column. Well, I mean, if you go back to even, let's say, the Islanders series in the 2020 playoffs, this has been a very inconsistent team. Now, I do still maintain that I think that this is a better team than, let's say, some analytics or underlying numbers will go would go because they are missing some very important players, unlike last season to start the year. But I mean, there is still a lot yet to be proved for this club. Now, I mean, you could still prorate it, you know, over an 82-game season, and if they go 5-2-2 two, and two the rest of the way over nine-game sample sizes, I think they would finish with something like 109 points or something. So we still have to give them credit. But at the same time, I think they started 6-2-1 and one last year, and we all know how that ended. So they still do have a lot to prove here. Now, like I've said, do I think this is the same team as last year? Certainly not. But I mean, the proof is in the pudding, right? They have to be able to win back-to-back -back games. And I think they have this year, but Martin Jones has tagged in for two of them. You know, they won back-to-back -back against Edmonton and Vancouver. And the other time, I believe it was Boston and Seattle, if I'm not mistaken. So, I mean... Obviously, even just for the psyche of Carter Hart, especially when he plays games as good as he did last year, it would be nice for him to get on a bit of a roll. You know, he's been in net for all four of their losses this year, albeit for three of the wins as well. But I mean, I think it's very important that they start kind of getting on a roll with Carter Hart in the net. I would assume he's going to play on Saturday. 
but then they have a break up until Wednesday against Toronto. So maybe he goes two more times. So, and then they get, you know, two very good teams in Washington and Toronto, you know, their document, their uh, tough November schedule is well documented, but uh, you're absolutely right. It's kind of a crazy statistic that he hasn't went back to back since January. I wonder if Jones gets the call tomorrow. Even, I mean, that's idea. the whole reason he got the start. Uh, I don't think it was a Vancouver. I think it was before the Vancouver one, but uh, where they don't want to sit him for long periods of time and then throw him in kind of cold against you know the back to back. They play back to back next Friday and Saturday against Carolina and Dallas. So I wonder if they uh, let him go tomorrow so he kind of you know has a chance and Hart doesn't start again to Wednesday. They have a couple of days off there, so. And then back to back next week, so they could reasonably play, you know, split those games two apiece over the next, uh, you know, week here. But we shall see. They, I mean, I, I think they should just roll with hard at this point. The games are spread out far enough. They got three day break coming up here. Just kind of, you know, let Hart have Saturday, Wednesday, Friday, and then let Jones play against Dallas on Saturday or something like that. Or if you want Jones against Carolina, whatever, more power to you. But. I would just kind of let Hart roll with it at this point, but I do understand not wanting to let Jones, you know, sit on the bench and rust for too long. Well, I mean, because next they have a long break and then they have three games in four nights. So, I mean, it wouldn't be the worst idea to go Hart, Hart, then Jones, then Hart again. But then because that's Hart playing three times in a span of six days, so it's not crazy overloading them. But to your point, do you want to go, what, two weeks without Jones seeing ice time? Because let's say theoretically he doesn't go until next Friday in Carolina. That would be 15 days between games. So, I mean, do you think that that could maybe do more harm than good? Yeah, probably. Yeah. And then, I mean, it, it is true, man. Like, look at the next, like, seven games here. Washington, Toronto, Carolina, Dallas, Calgary, Tampa, Boston. And then the next week, it's Tampa, Florida, Carolina. Yeah. yeah this, this, is is a, a, uh, this is a brutal three-week stretch here against the top teams in the league, essentially. I mean, in my head, I'm saying if they could come out 500 from this month, because going into the month, they were... The first month, they were what? Four and two? Four, two, and one? Something like that. Yeah, four, two, and one. So I mean, if they could come out being five hundred, but again, like you say that, but with the Metropolitan Division, it's just absolutely nuts right now. Like that Metropolitan Division, like you may see a team with like if a hundred points, but like it's crazy right now that the Flyers are on pace for let's say over 105 points and they're only in the first wild card spot right yep. now just to give you an example like their record is very solid if you prorate it over 82 games obviously it's tough to do that but for them to be have taken away 12 of a possible 16, uh, 18 points and be fourth in the division like that's kind of saying something like Carolina 9-0-0. It seems like they're already kind of starting to run away with it. You have the Rangers who are 6-2-2. The Caps who are 5-1-4. Like, the, like, you can make the case that the top three will stay like that the rest of the way. Probably. I do, I, I do think Columbus will tail off a bit. I think Jersey... 
maybe they'll come up, but I think that Columbus and Jersey are the two teams that I'm not really sure about. But then you still have the Islanders, you still have Pittsburgh. Like those two teams could easily get back into it. And then you have to contend with the wildcard teams in the in the Atlantic. Like Boston, I don't think Buffalo's gonna be all that serious. But I mean you know, like I think that you're going to see two or three really good teams miss this year. Maybe even some with close to a hundred points, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, I would assume the Blue Jackets tail off and the Islanders catch up sooner or later. Uh, the Penguins will probably be at least around until the very end. And you know, but the top three teams in the Metro right now, the Hurricanes, Rangers, and Capitals, could very well be a mixture of the top three come the end of the season. And the Flyers may just have to hold on for dear life for for a uh, a wild card spot because maybe you could catch the Capitals, but uh, you know Ovechkin has been carrying them so far to the gate this year, and I don't know. I think the Hurricanes are a very, very good, uh, very good team. You know, a lot of people worried about them when Hamilton left, but then they brought in two very good goalies, and the rest of that team is still relatively intact. Plus, you got the great Rod Brendamore behind the bench. Um, you know that team. And I don't think they're going to go eighty-two and zero, but uh, I don't think they're going to be doing a whole lot of losing, provided everyone stays healthy either. And you know, over in the Atlantic, uh, I would assume the Red Wings, Senators, and Canadians probably don't pose much of a threat, but the Bruins are probably going to at least hang around uh, in the you know wild card picture. Probably the Leafs, Panthers, and Lightning are some you know. Uh, in some variation, finish one, two, and three in the Atlantic. Uh, Bruins are probably a wild card spot, and the Flyers, I assume, are going to hang around in a wild card spot, fighting with the Bruins, Islanders, and Penguins essentially for two of those places. So, yeah, it's going to be a rough year. They cannot really afford to give up any uh, any of these soft games, and luckily they were able to steal a point from Pittsburgh last night. They did beat the Coyotes the other night, so you know, kind of no harm, no foul there. But their play needs to improve significantly, especially during this upcoming stretch, if they really want to secure some of these wins. Because if they come out of this month and they get buried by some of these better teams, like it could be a, a hard hill to climb that they're going to be fighting for the next few months. Oh, they can get buried very easily yeah. if they don't, you know, I, I don't even want to say get their shit together because they are still playing an overall, like, good game right now, I would say. But, like, if they're not careful, like that's a better way to phrase it, they could easily get buried in this. And I think it's imperative that you win the divisional games. Now, who's in their division? Washington, that's a very big game. Like, they could pass Washington if they win tomorrow night. I think that's a huge game. Carolina you at least have to win one of those games and then even a game like against Toronto like it's possible that Toronto's battling with you in a wild card spot when all is said and done so these are huge games that you cannot afford to take lightly even the Boston game in a few weeks time and like I mean if you could try and take away six out of every possible 10 points that are available to you that's going to be a big plus as well and you have to assume that Hayes and um, Ellis are going to help when they come back hopefully they're both back by sometime next week but I mean you know I got word yesterday that Allison isn't expected back until at least December if not longer so that's another guy that maybe will end up being kind of like a trade deadline acquisition because I would assume he goes down to the Phantoms for a few games if not weeks and then I mean I guess one thing I'll throw to you is, you know, we've talked about guys like Larkin and Hurdle a lot and that Konechny would kind of be that ideal piece. But like if it if push came to shove and it had to be Farabee, would you consider it? I would consider it. I don't think he's 
untouchable. I, I think he's on the borderline. You know, and it, that would really help more. There'd be a much definitive answer to the question if Wade Allison was playing right now, if he was healthy. And, you know, if he looked good and Konechny looked like he had his shit back together and you had two guys that could theoretically be, you know, your one and two right wingers for the foreseeable future, yeah, I, I would be fine offering up Farabee if need be. But because Allison is on the sidelines and he only played, what, two dozen games last year, maybe, no, I don't think, I think it was like 14, wasn't it? It wasn't even that much. So, you know, because of the limited experience there, you know, it's hard to tell kind of where his ultimate future goes. But if he's back in time you know, say before Christmas and he gets, you know, a month, two months in, what is going on outside? Jesus. Before the, uh, (laughs) trade deadline there that, uh, maybe if he comes back and looks good and and it does come to having give up Farabee, I, I, I would not be completely opposed to it now. And, you know, that would kill man because I love Joel Farabee and yeah, he's had a so, so start poor last couple games, but I don't think anyone's debating that eventually he'll be a damn good player in, in the league. He's already shown that, but you know, we talked about it a few episodes ago that this year cannot be taken for granted. And let's say everything remains relatively equal come the trade deadline. I think that you have to go for it. And if by going for it, you need to give up a guy like Farabee to get a guy like Larkin. It's something you have to really strongly consider because the thing is, is that you got to look at this team and say, will they be better with Joel Farabee playing on the wing on the second line or Dylan Larkin playing center on the second line or kind of like a first line or a top line, you know, like it's not hard to think that if Larkin came in, him and Katoria may split duties as a first-line center. Like, I don't think people realize how good a Dylan Larkin is to this team, Is how good he is in the league, rather. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, we've talked about before, they have a lot of wingers that they could make up for losing one, even one as good as Joel Farabee. And like you said, they'll have a better idea if they can afford to do that when Wade Allison comes along. But, I mean... Obviously, I think giving up a Konechny or a Limblom would be more ideal, but I just think if it's between getting that deal done and not getting that deal done, and Farabee is kind of like the linchpin to that, again, assuming most things remain equal between now and March, I mean, it would be tough to say no, you know what I mean? Yep, yeah, I would uh, I would agree. You know, that's one of those guys where it may not be easy to give up, but you're getting somebody in Larkin who could be the difference between, you know, getting eliminated in the first or second round and winning a cup. And this team is not exactly in the position to sit around and say, well, we'll give it, you know, three, four more years because you've been hearing that for the better part of a decade now. And, you know, they're kind of burned all their last chances over the last little while here. And, you know, especially with Giroux's contract coming up and you're going to have to hand out some money here. You already handed out quite a bit of money, eh, you know, resigning eh, Farabee and whatnot over the next little while. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes, but, uh, you know, so far, so good. The Phantoms won the other night. I don't know if you heard. Finally won a game. That's unusual. Oh, how was that? Uh, Sandstrom got the shutout. Frost looked like a semi-competent hockey player for the first time in, I don't know, two years. And uh, they won. I really enjoy me some Felix Sandstrom right now. This guy, he's been very impressive. Uh, out of the gate this year, which is good. I, I, I mean, I've talked about this. I thought I've always, I always liked him more than I liked Usminko just based on their playing style. And now that he's 
you know, in the AHL handing the starting duties and kind of getting, uh, you know, the line share, the starts, and he looks good doing so. That makes me happy. Um, I don't think we see him in the NHL barring an injury to one of the two, knock on wood, but um, I think if he were to get the call and have to play a few games in the NHL, I think he could handle it. He's looked very, very good, and Frost is good. York looks fine. Zamula looks fine. Uh, Forrester had a goal just standing in the left circle, ripping him like fucking Ovechkin. My favorite part of his game. I love Tyson Forrester. But, uh, you know, they won a game. And I haven't heard a single word about LaPerrier since. So as long as it's shut up that fucking crowd, that's uh, that's an extra bonus. Uh, Well, two things. Do you think Sandstrom eventually becomes an NHL goaltender? And what about Frost? Do you think he could get a call-up sometimes in, in the near future? Sandstrom... Probably has a chance to be an NHL goalie. Um, he he does seem to have the basics in tow. His game is very solid, which I always liked, um, and which is why I always favored him over Ustaminko in the first place. But, uh, you know, you, it's one of those positions that's hard to tell until he actually gets up and plays. But I, I don't see why he couldn't, you know, be at least a backup in the near future um, for an NHL club, be it the Flyers or someone else. And Frost, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't have many positives about Frost. You know, uh, we talked a little about this last week where he feels very much like preseason Frost still, where he's too busy trying to control his two-way play that he's not standing out, you know, in a positive way. He's not playing his game, which, you know, I think Frost just needs to kind of find an identity. He needs to try and focus on his two-way game and be something good or he needs to just go balls to the wall offensive and just kind of hope that that can outweigh whatever defensive flaws he makes um you know if there's an injury to say Linda Blom or Lawton and you want to call Frost up and plop him on the third line just to kind of get a little bit of experience and see what he can do yeah I'd be for it I still don't <laughs> I'm just not convinced this guy's got a bright future at the NHL level. I assume he makes it at some point just because he's probably too good not to, but I don't think this guy's ever going to be anything, you know, super worthwhile. So, like, just for the audience out there, him centering Atkinson and Farabee in the time being is not the answer? No. No. <laughs> I, well, that was the, uh, 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 was I last Friday, Saturday, when the hell I was at the game last? When they were at home, um, he, he scored that goal. He had a goal and an assist in that game. And somebody quote tweeted my tweet and said, "Call him up and put him at two C." And they were very serious. And I'm like, "Bro, <laughs> like, one good game does not a two C make." Uh, and it's just, it's unfortunate that you know, kind of frost is where he is now. But uh, you know, I, I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know what to make of Morgan Frost yet. Yeah, you know, I still. The problem with him in the AHL is like. I want to see him be a star. You know, I want to see yeah. him look better than everybody else on the ice. When he's on there, you know he's on there, and he's kicking ass and taking names. And you just don't see that. And that was always what I was hinting at in, in 1920 as well, is, like, there were only a handful uh, a handful of games, rather, where he looked like that. It was right before the fucking pandemic hit, where it finally looked like he was kind of getting his stride and kind of understanding what to do, and the pandemic hit, and then he destroyed his shoulder last year, and, you know, has played four periods of hockey in 18 months. So I assume there's just a lot of cobwebs to shake off, and I think he is trying hard to play that two-way game and to be a... a 
good hockey player, which is good. You know, he's glad to see that there is some initiative being taken by Frost to not be a liability from a defensive standpoint. But, you know, this is a guy who is going to succeed. His bread and butter is going to be through his offense. And if that's not showing up, then he's just not it. You know, even got, you know, we just talked about the third line, Scott Lawton and Lindblom. You know, those two are very, very good two-way guys where they're, you know, they can score, they can produce offense, but it's not necessarily their top thing. And I think that's something that Frost is trying a little too hard to be. I think he needs to be just a little bit more free offensively and just kind of, if he can go out there and score, you know, 20 goals and not screw anything up defensively, He's got a future in the NHL, but he's just, he seems to be shifting to one extreme or the other. And he, I, I hope that, you know, this experiment of deploying him in more defensively favorable roles ultimately pays off and he learns. I mean, remember Scott Lawton when he came up? He took quite a few years in the AHL um, before yeah. he found his game and kind of developed into that guy. So maybe that's the, uh, the path Frost ends up taking versus, you know, a Calder you know, Canada who jumps into the NHL and puts up a hundred points in his, you know, rookie season. I don't think we're going to see that out of him, but you know, we're, we shall see. He's, he's still a work in progress. Well, I mean, I think we've said it numerous times that through all of our like joking and trolling of people who thought he was Giroud Jr. We never said that this guy's a boss and never going to make the NHL. No. He's just going to rot away in the AHL. But I think that the problem is, is the expectation because yes, we had yep. so many people and we know who they are that promoted him as the next coming of Giroux for so many years. And if you look at his numbers in his draft year, it was 62 points in 67 games, which is, you know, what first round picks get. And it was the two years where he was an overager and, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, where he really dominated the competition as he should. And I think that if we really just dumb down the expectations for all prospects, I think that he just kind of became the poster boy of it. It would go a long way. And like yep. you said, Scott Lawton's a great example. A guy, first round pick, I think he was 20th overall, captain Team Canada at the World Juniors. Never the, quite the offensive upside as Frost, but I think a lot of people had him pegged as Mike Richards, like that kind of comparable. And he had to reinvent his game. And look... More times than not, I think we could agree that he's a fourth-line center or a third-line left wing who could do, you know, spot duty as a middle 6C if need be, and that's what he's become, and that's great. If a first-round first pick becomes an everyday NHLer, it's a success. And I do think that one day, three years from now, we'll talk about Morgan Frost as a solid middle 6 center on, or even winger on some team in the NHL, maybe even the Flyers. But I think what we need to do is kind of just pull back this hope and this desperate belief that he's going to be Claude Giroux Jr. Yep, yep, yep. And <laughs> I think the fact that people still hold on to that, I, I do think most people have kind of come around on Frost, at least to some extent. You know, they're not quite blowing the smoke up his chimney light like they were in the past. But, you know, then he has that one good game and everybody is all of a sudden like, oh, it's hard to call him up, it's hard to call him up. And it's like, bro, <laughs> you know, it's just, let's see him put together a string of like five and ten good games before we, you know, pencil him in his 2C right now, even with uh, Broussard struggling. Well, that's that's it, you know. And I think that even when we go back to Ristolainen or Sanheim and people who hate them, it's all about expectation, right? Yep. And, and I've said this so many times, it's just like, do you not think second pair defensemen will make mistakes from time to time? 
Like, do you not think that fourth line centers will get buried from time to time? Like, there's reasons why they do that. And like, could they be better? Yes. But it's like, uh, like, who's a good example of, uh, let's say, Braden Coburn back in the day. Like when he would play second pair and he was a very good second pair, but Coburn too was a guy who would make really fucking bonehead decisions one time. Yep. I remember, I, I will always remember this Dustin Bufflin driving the net, coming in from the corner and on the replay, you literally saw Coburn looking at him and he turned around and skated the other way and Bufflin <laughs> went right in front and buried it. And I could not to this day, I wish I could have that clip because he literally saw Bufflin coming turned his back to him and just glided the other way. It was hilarious. <laughs> but I think all in all, Braden Coburn was a good second pairing defenseman. Or even a guy like Scott Lawton's a good comparable. Was he a first second first second line center like Richards was? No, he wasn't, but he's done well in his role. So I think a lot of the issues people have is running into expectations with players. Yep. And you know <laughs> I realize I'm guilty of of promoting guys like Forster. Uh, you know, buying into their That's hype. Different. But you're saying that you just like the player. I do like. I, I really do like Tyson Forrester. And quite frankly, I think he has a game that's much better built for the NHL. And you know, part of this was because of the pandemic, and he had the the opportunity to play in the AHL last year and this season when he should still be in juniors. You know, but this is a guy. I mean, he's physically there. He's you know six two, six three, two hundred pounds. Like he's ready, and he's succeeding to some extent in the AHL, you know, he's got development time. He still has a lot to learn. I don't think he should be in the NHL at all this season, unless he gets his shit together and breaks out later in the year. But, you know, he has some modicum of success at the professional level versus just one very, very good junior year. You know, when now he's succeeding against other men. You know, other people that are older than him, that are his size, that are better. You know, whereas Frost, you know, dunking on a bunch of 16-year-olds just doesn't mean anything to me. Well, that's the difference, right? And like, and even a guy like, let's say, uh, well, what about Cam York? Where does he kind of fall with all this? I, I like York. He's not overly flashy, but he's doing a lot of the little things right, which I think that's ultimately the game I expect from him in the NHL is just kind of a very solid guy. He may almost be like a more complete Travis Sanheim in a sense where Sanheim is a quote unquote offense offenseman, but he doesn't necessarily produce a lot of offense, you know, he, but he, he could if need be, and he's in the position where he knows what he's doing. And he's very slick. I think York is a far better skater than Travis Sanheim and a probably, you know, smarter player as well. But I, that would be almost who I would compare him to at this point. I hate doing that because it makes me fucking eye twitch when I think about Cam York being Travis Sanheim. But, mm-hmm. you know, overall, I do think that's kind of, you know, what I would expect out of York is just a, a more competent Travis Sanheim. Just to prove to everyone that you're not impartial, do you think that Sanheim could be a decent second pair defenseman on a team contending for a cup? With the right scenario, he could be. And I mean, listen, we've even this is a good. Remember last year when it was with Phil Myers and those two were a fucking goddamn disaster together. Like at yep. least he's better with Ristolainen because Ristolainen is better than Phil Myers. So that pair did elevate itself a little bit. And, you know, Sanheim has looked better than he has in the past. You know, he's still missing that guy. If he was with, like, if he had a Ryan Ellis of his own 
you know, to go with. And like somebody, Larson. Yeah, Larson or somebody. Somebody that could just carry him a little bit, you know, where that, that, that had a little bit of a defensively better IQ than Ristolainen and just a, a complete stay-at-home defenseman to partner Sandheim with. That would be the ideal situation. But, you know, top right-handed defensemen are a hot commodity, and you already have one in Ellis, and I don't think they're going to go out and try and find another one for Sanheim. So you just kind of have to make it work. But, I mean, that pair has much improved versus the Sanheim-Myers pair that we saw last year. You know, I, I, don't, like, I do think that stylistically there is a bit of a clash, but I... I, someone told me this on Twitter, and I got to give him credit, but he he had a good breakdown of it, that they're really, what I've realized with Ristolainen is like they're kind of breaking down his entire game, what he was coached to do in Buffalo as he was even relied on as a guy to generate offense, and are building him back up as more of like a stay-at-home guy, like making simple plays with the puck. And we've, we saw, I think it was the Coyotes game where he like led the rush, shot it on net, drove the net, knocked a guy over and created a scrum in front and actually almost buried it. But I think that what they're trying to do is turn him into more of a stay-at-home guy to make the simple plays and bring that physical edge. So I do think that they have the potential. And again, I do think for the most part they have been fine, especially given their deployment. And what like and like you said, it goes both ways. Like every time Sanheim makes a mistake, like we have to bury him. Every time Ristolainen makes a mistake, we have to bury him. When in reality, I'm just like, okay, they made a few mistakes. Sanheim had an overall not so great game last night. But for the majority over the last two weeks, he has been good. So do I, ex- I said this, I think on our last show or the one before, is that aside from a select few players like Couturier, like Provorov, like Giroud to an extent, I'm not going to expect a perfect game from every player every night. And that's just the simple fact of the NHL is that you have a select few of very good players who are the top guys on their team and everyone else will make mistakes from time to time. So I'm not going to jump on a dog pile on Sanheim or on Ristolainen every time. Now, if you have a guy like Abe Kubel, who before (laughs) he got benched was... Yeah, exactly. It's a different thing. Or a guy like Farabee, who it's been four or five, six straight games now, or even that entire line, it's different. But I mean, I just think people expect too much of certain players and to your point are just preconditioned to hate certain players. Yeah, uh, it's funny because I see all this rage on Twitter from everybody every time anybody makes a mistake on this team. Oh, JVR did this, Sanheim did that, Rustalina did this. And it's like, maybe it's just because they were so bad last year that I walked away hating every last player every after every last game that I'm just kind of numb to it all. But the fact that they're playing, like, for the most part, relatively decent hockey this year, I have my complaints. I can pick apart certain things. But for the most part, they are playing a lot better than they did in the past. So maybe I'm just, you know, my scale is skewed by just how bad last season was that I'm being relatively neutral to a lot of these players thus far. But I, I do think overall they are playing a much better of hockey than they have in the past. And like right now, that's all I can ask for. (laughs) Now, if they can all get it together and start firing on all cylinders, like they were doing the first three or four games of the season where they looked really, really good as a complete team, that would be ideal. But right now, like, you know, you want to see more effort out of them. You don't want to see them drag their feet against, you know, Pittsburgh or Arizona or anything like that. But 
as far as overall, you know, efforts go and just people screwing everything up, I don't have a lot of complaints on an individual level right now. So you just got to kind of take it in stride until somebody really starts screwing something up. And I would like to see what this team looks like with a full healthy lineup. Just that once. would help. Yeah. Yeah. Like they've played only one game with all of their defensemen healthy, which was the game against Boston. Uh, every other game, either Ellis or Ristolainen has been missing, and we have yet to see Hayes in the lineup. And even by saying fully healthy, I'm not even including Allison. Like just Hayes and Ellis. I want to see what this team looks like with Hayes and Ellis for a few games, just so we get a real feeling on what to expect of them. You're, you know, number one D and second line center are out. There are two very critical pieces of this team that are missing right now. Uh, you know, which doesn't help in the, the grand scheme. So, And Sam Ryan's missing, too. Mention that. yeah. That's too bad. Yeah. It's all, it's, it could, <laughs> You finally have this chance for to get some prolonged playing time in with everybody else being injured, and he's on the shelf, too. God damn it. Yeah, and I got word yesterday that he's still out indefinitely. So that Not surprised. Sucks. I didn't really expect to see him before Thanksgiving anyway. So so maybe San Felipe was on to something before everyone tried to bite his head off. Eh, you know, almost like Twitter's too reactionary. You don't <laughs> say. <laughs> All right, everybody. I guess we'll call it a day here. Um, Freaking Flyer will go up tomorrow. That's preempted. And then the craziness starts again next week. Noah, Sunday, Nick on, not Nick, Shane, that's his name, Jesus, he's going to hate me for that one, Shane on uh, Monday, Tuesday, Anthony, Wednesday, I actually don't know, what was, I think there's a game next Wednesday, so it probably won't be Sister Pod, we'll figure it out, you guys all know the schedule by now, um, plenty of stuff on Bradley Puck, Bradley Puck Weekly, the X-Flyer of the Week was Sean Podine this week. So you can check that out at Dan the Flyer Fan, at Brotherly Puck, at Brotherly underscore pod, and at Heart Countdown underscore if you want to count down Carter Hart's wins with me. Because next time he plays, he's due for a win because he just lost. So that's the bright side, I guess, right? It's like the playoffs, uh, the Flyers playoffs. You know they're going to make it this year, just like <laughs> fucked up last year. Yeah, I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> and then he can people find you on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Demarco 25 All right, everybody. Until next time, goodbye and good nights.